Yeah, I graduated summa cum laude in Alpha, Beta, Omega. Welcome back to Goodwood, everybody. I am Beck. I'm Kit. And I'm Jess. We're so excited by everyone's response to our first episode, and we really enjoyed diving into some penguins and Sid Geno-specific elements, but we wanted to make it a bit more general for our next episode. So today's topic is going to be ABO, Alpha, Beta, Omega, Dynamics. And uh, Beck, what is ABO? ABO is a speculative trope in which characters possess a secondary gender of alpha, beta, or omega. ABO's birth point is a supernatural J2 kink meme from May 2010. It grew in popularity within the supernatural fandom and eventually spread, becoming commonplace in other fandoms like Teen Wolf and Sherlock. Its popularity has grown so much that it has spilled outside of the fanfiction and fandom worlds. It has become a role-playing aesthetic universe on Tumblr, a meme and in-joke over the logistics of heat during Ramadan on TikTok, and it has even crossed into self-published heterosexual romance novels, which then became the topic of YouTube essays when one author claimed she had invented the heterosexual Omegaverse and was thus suing another author for copyright infringement over her own heterosexual dystopian Omegaverse story which then resulted in both an actual judge and then readers of the New York Times having to learn about fringe wolf-inspired erotica. Your hosts are fascinated by the presence of ABO fanfiction and hockey RPF and what it says about gender and erotica and the world of hockey. So today we're here to talk about it all. And I think we should begin by briefly discussing where we've seen ABO in the past and if we've seen it change at all over the years or from fandom to fandom. I have no memory of my early fandom life at all, so who knows. But I'm at least fairly certain that the first time I ever saw ABO must have been not too long after 2010, which is interesting to me because you mentioned that that's the birth point of ABO, and I thought it was much older. But I do remember that it was on some kind of a kink meme, and I think at that time, it was really a kink meme only thing. I remember seeing it on kink memes, but not on other fanfiction sites and not even really on the broader life journal sphere. It was very much a kink thing and it was treated as a kink more than a general trope that could be applied to all kinds of genres like college AU or something. That was how I first encountered it too, I think was very much as a kink. I feel like the first place I read it was probably Harry Potter. It might have also been Sherlock. But I think the first time I started seeing it outside of just purely kink was in One Direction fandom around 2015. 
I was really squicked at first by like the Xeno aspects of it, but also the pretty gender regressive politics of the trope, especially I think in its early years. Even in slash pairings, it felt like it was often reinforcing these really troubling heteronormative relationship dynamics. And then also these really gender essentializing ways of thinking about people's relationship to their bodies or to desire or to sex. And I think I've always been kind of interested in like darker dubcon or consent play type stuff, but it felt like ABO was was not consent play. It was people trying to say like, oh, the Omega's body always wants it. You know, this idea that Omega instincts would override your conscious decisions about your sex life or your desires or your choice of partner. And so you had all these characters who were slaves to their instincts and who were acting in ways that often violated what they consciously wanted. It felt like it was so obviously this way of eroticizing like this cultural rhetoric around women and rape and this idea that you can't rape women because they're bodies always want it. And I think that like really turned me off of the trope for a long time. I was just kind of like, that's not really the consent play that I'm interested in. I definitely think a turning point for me was I won't say the fandom or the fic, but it was a fic where the author switched up who was the oppressed or marginalized class. And so it was a world where alphas were stereotyped and were, you know, subjected to all of these really regressive cultural scripts that often didn't match the way that they felt. And it was just a short fic that was about a relationship between an alpha and omega partner. And the omega partner didn't question those stereotypes at all. Like the partner was fetishizing this idea in their mind of of what being an alpha meant. And I think that was the first moment. It was like a really ambivalent, emotionally ambivalent fic where nothing was really fixed in the relationship dynamic. And I think for me, that was the moment where things really clicked. I was like, oh my gosh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. I see how like this could actually be like a really emotionally and imaginably rich way of exploring like the way people understand gendered scripts around desire or the way that these cultural norms around what you're supposed to want or what you're supposed to be like in bed or whatever influence these intimate relationships and just the way that people internalize stuff. Because I'm I'm always looking for ways to write about shame. And I feel like that was when I was like, oh, ABO could be such a cool way of digging into some of those things at kind of a slant. That's very interesting to me because my introduction to ABO was through a much more traditional framework. Well, not that you were introduced differently. I mean, I think you had the same introduction, but you didn't buy into it until much later, whereas I had immediate buy-in. So ABO was invented in its modern iteration right before I got into K-pop. I didn't see it for many years. It was not a part of K-pop fic when I was in that fandom, though that's changed today. I encountered ABO for the first time in the Teen Wolf fandom, which is one of the seminal fandoms, I think, that helped grow it in popularity. So my experience with it has always been more heavily influenced by the animalistic and wolf-like aspects of the trope. I was immediately comfortable with the, you know, Xeno elements and with the instinct-driven parts. It was semi-kink-like, but it was also more just like a twist on real canon characteristics that were present in the TV show. Something unique to Teen Wolf's ABO was that the Alpha and Beta and Omega werewolves all exist canonically in the text. Of course, they didn't exist in the show in the same way that they exist commonly in fan works, but there are a lot of similarities that meant the line between canon lore and ABO fanon and fan works became very blurred. And I actually, after leaving Teen Wolf, didn't encounter a lot of ABO in my fandoms until I got into hockey and I saw it cropping up a little bit more. And I personally had a vested interest in bringing more ABO into hockey because I felt like it was kind of a fertile ground for it. 
But I've also seen ABO morph a lot in going between what it was when I first encountered it back in the early 2010s versus what I see it now in the 2020s. And part of it, I think, plays into Jess, how you were saying that you're seeing more exploratory texts in which authors are more carefully or curiously investigating the dynamics of the world and more eager to play around with them, to invert things, to subvert things, and to draw out the more speculative elements of the kink, which I don't think it's entirely a kink anymore. I think it's a subgenre. It's more than just a trope, in fact. I think it's gotten to the point where it is a subgenre within the genre, quote unquote, of fan fiction. I think one of the easiest ways to point that out is just the existence of so much T and G rated ABO fix that don't include any kind of sexual aspect. And there's a ton of it. It's just like maybe Mpreg or something. But if you look it up, that exists. And it's not really something I could have imagined with the original way that I encountered ABO as a kink. And now the way it's moved towards the realm of, as you said, it's more of a trope. I really see it as a mode of writing fanfic that also allows for a non-sexual lens of the canon just in the same way as it allows for a sexual lens. One thing that's really interesting is I feel like when I was reading this stuff initially, it was really, really centered on like heat sex and rut sex. And I think now it's much more common to read stuff where heat or rut are like part of it, but it's really more about exploring like gender norms or cultural scripts or even like gendered caste systems within a universe. And that stuff, like Kit said, doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, even if it also touches on sex. I agree that it has changed in that way. And I think something that really illustrates it is seeing how it's made its way into mainstream erotica or romance. And I'm more specifically referring to the Omegaverse lawsuit. The lawsuit involves two different authors arguing over copyright over the existence of heterosexual Omegaverse. And funnily enough, without knowing about that lawsuit, I actually read both books that were part of that court case before Lindsay Ellis's YouTube video was published and drew a bit more attention to it. I really like the ABO trope and I wanted to read more of it. So I found those books and I read them. But I found that these published heterosexual ABO universes lacked really any of the spark that existed within slash ABO. I think the interesting questions about gender that Slash ABO bring up are essential to the trope. And in both of the romance novels I read, the ABO designations just served to worsen the gender dystopia that was already present in the story. I didn't believe that the books would have been very different if they were set in normal dystopias without any ABO elements, because a lot of straight erotica is already hypergendered without even needing a dystopia. There are already power dynamic differentials between men and women, and where I feel that slash ABO is sexually heightened by ABO's inclusion because it adds dynamics and stakes and inequality that were previously absent, heterosexual ABO is rendered sort of useless. The sexual dynamics, stakes, and inequality are perhaps heightened, and you're perhaps adding a dash of xenobiology and feral play. But the fundamental dynamic of the characters hasn't changed very much unless the woman is the alpha and the man is the omega. But I've never seen that. Um, I was wildly unimpressed by both the published heterosexual Omegaverse novels I read. And I don't have any desire to read more because I didn't feel like they did justice to the trope. I feel like within fan fiction, we've kind of broadened our horizons over what ABO can do. And I don't see that happening within this super niche kink erotica self-published romance novels. 
they're still not doing what fan fiction is doing with ABO in this moment. And I think that illustrates really clearly that something about the way fandom has done ABO has changed. Yeah, I think one of the ways you can also see that or one of the ways that I've seen it is when I looked up the corresponding tags that go along with people tagging for ABO. And I was really surprised to see how popular, for example, the fluff tag is, which, you know, when we talk about it as like this grimy gender dystopia, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see fluff there. Yeah, maybe we're biased because like I never think of it in that fluff context, but you're so right that that is a version of it that people write. You know, I think sometimes in like One Direction fandom, the most popular pairing um, is Harry Louis. I think the way that ABO was often used there was more of that sort of heterosexual romance dynamic. People had really rigid gender roles for Harry and Louis. And sometimes it was like a really fluffy celebration of heteronormative dynamic. You know what I mean? Like it was like, you're like, oh, okay, well... I don't know. It's just not the way that I use the trope or that I think about it. But it's interesting to think about like the different ways that people use it, even within fandom, because it's not always like a critical exploration of it. I was going to say, too, like personally, my use of ABO isn't inherently connected to a critical consumption of like what it means to have ABO dynamics in my stories. I find it really joyful. I find it really fun. I just find it a very interesting universe to play in. And I love throwing characters in it because I think it adds inherent conflicts that are sometimes not a part of hockey fanfics as I see them today. And so while you tend to view it through this critical lens because that was what sparked your interest in it and I think has more relation to what you are inherently drawn to as a part of fiction, as a part of romance, as a part of writing, for me, it's a bit more of it's just something I really enjoy and I kind of always have. So I, I have a lot of inherent buy-in is what I like to say. Like you don't have to convince me very hard to read ABO fan fiction because it's a universe that I fi find it really easy to delight in and to just enjoy for what it does to the fan fiction that I'm reading. And isn't it so cool that ABO allows for that? Something that I first encountered or first saw as a very strict trope or a trope with, with very strict ideas of how it can be applied. And I feel like the way it's used now from people who write heterosexual gender dystopias to fluff emprag to using it to analyze complex social situations and, and societal norms and prejudices. I think it's such a rich genre, if you want to call it that. And I think really that's what draws me in when it comes to ABO. Do we want to talk about ABO and hockey? Yeah, let's do it. No. No. What would you do if I said no? Podcast <laughs> over. Cancelled. I guess I'll say that, and this kind of builds on like what Beck was saying about how like I think we each have different things that interest us in the trope, you know, and so I also in hockey have different things that interest me maybe. But the way that I think about the trope is that it's really concerned with bodily autonomy and with having control or not having control, whether it's over your body, your desires, your instincts, and even sometimes like depending on how dystopian it is, control over your future. 
And it's not just reproductive agency, but also agency over how your gendered body is perceived or the kinds of futures or life paths that are available to you. And I think that one of the things that I was immediately like, oh, this works so well with hockey is this idea that professional athletes' bodies don't fully belong to them, that they are in some sense the property of the team and that the team has a lot of control, unless you're a really famous athlete, has almost total control over your future, like if you get traded or not, if you stay with the team, if you play in the AHL or in the NHL. And then they also have control over your body. So we saw like with the Jack Eichel medical case, you know, that they can say, oh, you can't have that surgery, right? Or you can't do this or this. Or the, you know, the reports about prescription drug use and abuse in the NHL, where athletes, you know, autonomy over their bodies and their health choices and so on are compromised in some way. And I think there are subtler ways too that hockey culture like encourages that. Like I think the way that they treat the athletes as these assets or commodities that you get everything you can out of them. And then they have no problem often disposing of them and getting a better asset or commodity, right? And I think that way of seeing the athlete as a body that is reduced to what it can do for the team, that that you know, that's a way of like seeing them not as fully human, right? Seeing them as a commodity and not as um, a person who has their own desires and plans and dreams and so on. Sacrifice the body. And the nature of hockey being a team environment. You know, it's already a situation in which these different athletes are building hierarchies depending on how they function within that team. And that's a really easy transition, I believe, into the hierarchies of Alpha, Beta, Omegas. And it's an all-male environment. And, you know, if you want to include some gender dynamics for whatever reason, maybe because that's something you want to explore or for plot reasons or because it's just something you find interesting or you want to eroticize or whatever, you need to have some kind of method or some kind of trope in this case to allow you to turn an all-male environment into a different gender environment or an environment with very strict gender hierarchies. And I think that ABO is sort of a really good shortcut in the way that tropes are a shortcut because we as fanfic readers are familiar with them. You know, if I tag something ABO, I don't have to explain to you in detail how this universe works. I can just dive into it. And of course, every ABO world is different, is unique in its own way, according to what the writer, you know, what choices they make. But the basic structures, we know those. We don't need to have those explained to us. So that's also why I think it's a trope that can really only work in fanfic, because I don't need that explained to me. I know what what it is. It's a shortcut for heightened gender dynamics, for example. I think it introduces those gender dynamics into an all-male environment, but I also feel like it picks up on the gender dynamics that are already present in all-male environments, like these rigid hierarchies around uh, who has power and who doesn't, these power and domination games that it seems like are common in those homosocial environments. So it's interesting that like in hockey, it both introduces gender diversity within a locker room that's all men, but it also picks up on some of the things that I think are, are troubling about all straight male homosocial environments. And it lets you explore those in a way that where you're like, oh, this is actually a formalized aspect of the world and not just like an unspoken or implicit norm that everyone in this space understands. 
in the same way that when you see the ABO tag, you know what you're getting into. I feel like most hockey RPF fans feel that way about the gender dynamics that they expect to exist within hockey fanfiction. You know, they are aware that the locker room is a incredibly heterosexual, incredibly hypermasculine environment. There's a lot of rigid gender expectations, you know, contempt for softness, and all alpha spaces map really well onto locker rooms. And actually, I wanted to bring up two different instances of our coach, Mike Sullivan, calling the players alpha males. Both are from 2016, and Mike Sullivan said to these reporters that he was dealing with a group of players, quote, they're alpha males to get them to buy into a certain identity or a certain way of playing or a philosophy as the head coach. You have to have unwavering clarity on where you want to go with your team. And then there's another quote by Matt Duchesne on the World Cup of Hockey Team Canada, where he is talking about Canada's dressing room culture. And he says it's a locker room full of alpha males. The cool part about it is, and I don't know whether it's being Canadian or the hockey culture, that we all respect each other and identify what the other brings. We don't have one alpha over everybody else, which was really interesting to me in the light of the critiques we have of hockey culture, but also that they are using this language, which we know this language exists in like the Chad alpha male environment. The manosphere. Right, exactly. The manosphere. But this verbiage is present in hockey, and I think that makes it a really easy transition into writing ABO for hockey players. And I also want to mention how the gendering of hockey environments in this way has led to hockey ABO being considered especially popular. Um, In Milena Popova's article on the Omegaverse, they write that particular variations of the Omegaverse are especially popular in some fandoms such as more pronounced dog or wolf characteristics in stories set in the teen wolf fandom or social structures which emphasize sexual dominance and submissiveness in hockey real person fiction. So in also supporting that, there was another thesis I read titled Just Go Find Yourself a Nice Alpha in which the author argues that alphas are so erotically hypermasculine that they physically and sexually dominate other men, and the way in which alpha sexual desires overpower logic and rationality and consent creates an alpha culture of sexual abuse and violence that is, I think, not unlike the hypermasculine sexual environments of hockey. So it's really easy to map the troubling, erotic, hypergender dynamics of ABO onto what exists in modern hockey culture and how transformative fans want to reinterpret it. I was thinking of something just when you mentioned that there is this inherent hierarchy to those homosocial spaces, because I was thinking of my girl, Kosovsky Sedgwick, of course, um, because she writes about how homosocial environments are both extremely hierarchical And they allow men to kind of leave status behind. And the way she explains this is, you know, you can be a hockey player from whatever social background. But once you enter the team, you leave that social background behind and you enter a new hierarchy. So it creates this new space where all of these men are equal and then they're put into this new super hierarchical space. And I think that's exactly what we can see in hockey as well. And the way that ABO narrativizes or fictionalizes maybe those hierarchies and those homosocial practices that are maybe not as visible to us in our everyday life that become visible in this hockey space 
I think that's one of the main reasons why it's so popular in this particular fandom. Yeah, although what's interesting about that, and this is just a side tangent, but I was thinking like, I feel like the one thing that ABO in hockey is sometimes missing is like in real life locker room spaces, there's like so much more room for like sexually transgressive behavior that doesn't get labeled as sexually transgressive because it's understood that everyone there is straight, right? Or that's the assumption, the default assumption. So like men can basically like flirt with each other, right? In a way that is acceptable within this space. But when you're writing a locker room of all alphas, I feel like that gender playfulness isn't present in the same way, right? It's like people are much more married to like the kind of strict definitions of the hierarchy. I love it. No, I love that. I think that's really pertinent to how there's a desire in some of these writers and these readers to either create or consume worlds in which gender starts mattering more, or not more, starts mattering in a different way than it does in the commonly perceived locker room. And they want to add more gender-based conflict that doesn't align with how gender is actually portrayed within the locker room. And, you know, I think the lack of gender diversity that exists in real world hockey means there's even more of a desire to substitute gender diversity using these alternate gender systems. And something that's commonly said about ABO fan fiction is that by making men, typically straight, white, attractive men, omegas and fic, that allows writers and readers to identify more with male characters. You know, by opening these characters up to discrimination or systemic injustice, social bigotry that they otherwise would not experience, it makes them more like the nebulous us. And I think that's true, but I was also really fascinated by an argument in another thesis titled What is an Omega?, where the author posits that instead of the omega gender functioning as a way to make men experience misogyny and gender-based discrimination so that people of other genders can relate to them, omega men instead are a way to bring gendered otherness into the normal. Because by virtue of his male gender, a male omega character is part of the norm, but by virtue of his ABO designation, he's othered. So when writers give a character this sort of double status, they actually legitimize the feeling of being an othered gender by assigning those emotions to a character who's still, in one way, part of the norm and whose experiences are taken as universal by society. So female, or I would argue gender diverse, coded experiences are brought into the universal when men are made into omegas. It's a way for authors to legitimize and make standard their own experiences, which are marginalized by our dominant societal narrative that men are the standard, and especially in hockey, where it's only men. And I found that really an interesting twist on it. So it's not that, you know, we're just trying to make men like us, but rather we're trying to take experiences that we've had and make them more commonplace or more standard in environments where they literally would not exist, which I found really fascinating. Yeah, I think one of the things that I keep returning to when I think about ABO and what it means and how we use it is you do add these gender dynamics or experiences of being othered as your gender and in your gender to a person of a group that normally doesn't experience that by, you know, making a man or making a cis man an omega. But on the other hand, I think you could also argue, and I think maybe that's, and that's just, you know, me throwing something out there. This might be completely wrong. But um, that's also where kind of the fluff and everything comes in, is that while you add this idea of one of the people in the pairing, if it's a pairing, being othered in their gender, you do take away some of the sexual otherness in a way 
where, you know, if you have an all cis male locker room and then two of them are a couple, that's a gay couple. And in a space as heterosexual male as hockey, that's not something that's accepted. But if it's an alpha and an omega, that's following a social script. So in a way, while it adds gender otherness, it almost takes away sexual otherness, or I don't know if I want to say it heterosexualizes it, but it certainly changes the status of that relationship, of that sexual relationship in the context of the society that it's set in. And I find that tension, maybe you could say, super fascinating to think about. And I think that's why I am, for example, so interested in alpha alpha as a trope, which is also something that's up and coming. Because now I'm like, ooh, you're adding gender and it's fantasy gay. (laughs) Tell me more. Right. I mean, it kind of changes the entire purpose of the ABO. Like instead of making the desire normative, the desire is transgressive, but then it's compiled on with like these animalistic or xeno elements that heightened the aggressiveness of the hockey locker room like you know the aggressiveness and dominance politics that are present in actual hockey locker rooms are then supercharged by the alpha dynamics so you still get those transgressive romances that are not going to be accepted by the locker room but it's like someone poured kerosene on it and lit it on fire so After establishing why ABO lends itself so well to hockey, why don't we talk about some of the ways in which we see the trope actually functioning and being used in hockey fic. One of the things that really clicked for me when I first read that trope subversion one was I was like, oh, okay, this is making me think about in our world how masculinity is constructed, how an aggressive hypermasculine version of masculinity is constructed, and then what that does to the people who have to live inside it, what it means to have to inhabit that and to be perceived as a threat or to be perceived in these fetishizing ways on the basis of that hypermasculinity. So I think that that has really obviously shaped my own engagement with ABO because I think I definitely use it to think about what is it like to inhabit a gendered body? What is it like to feel a mismatch between the cultural script for desire that you're presented with and the way that you feel inside or the things that you want in your relationship? And like, how do two people, even if they're in an outwardly alpha omega traditional relationship in this world, how do they get to navigate or negotiate a different kind of dynamic within that private space? So I think for me, I almost 100% use ABO to think about gender and sex and relationship preoccupation that I have in the real world. And I think ABO defamiliarizes the world enough that it feels like you're stepping a little bit out of our world. So you can kind of look back at our world or look back at familiar dynamics and think, oh, I see that a little bit differently now because I'm at just slightly a slant. And that helps me see something different about it that when I was immersed in it, I couldn't see or couldn't articulate. So for me, I think that's how I use the trope. And that's and that's the kind of ABO that I'm really drawn to, which I think probably is different from some of the other ways that we use it. So I, I'd just be interested to hear like how you approach it or use it or what you see it as being useful for. I don't, when it comes to that framing of it being useful for something, I don't think that's the way in which I approach fandom and my consumption of fic and my writing of fic inherently. Mostly because I'm not, with most of my fics, I'm not trying to, you know, have a message included. I'm not necessarily writing for much other than my own enjoyment and for trying to tell a story that I care about or that I'm interested in. I don't think that's inherently juxtaposed to what you're doing. I think it's just two different ways we're approaching craft. 
And when it comes to the inclusion of ABO, I see it less as a lens through which to look at the gendered dystopia of the real world and more of a chance to include narratively exciting elements that can get flattened in romance by virtue of having an all-gender environment. And being able to include, you know, this other gender of, you know, alphas and omegas and betas, I feel like I'm more able to bring forth really fun or really dramatic or really tense situations that are a bit harder to construct in a non-ABO universe, or they're just different, you know, in, in a situation where maybe I don't want to write a fic about homophobia, because I, I very rarely write fics that happen in a homophobia-free universe. It's just not something I'm drawn to personally. I prefer to include it if I have a gay romance but sometimes maybe my desire in writing is not necessarily about the fight of sexuality and accepting that about yourself and getting others to accept that about you. But I want to write about gender instead. And I can't do that in an environment where everyone is the same gender. Well, I can, but it's different. And I think I really like exceptional narratives, like narratives in which one character is the exception to the rule or is exceptional in some way or other. And um, I think it's why I'm drawn to writing Sid in the first place. And I find that a really easy way to make a character exceptional is to give them institutionally something that they have to fight against. So that can be homophobia, but in an ABO universe, that can be gender. And I just find that to be a dramatic and fun plot point to include that I really enjoy writing and I think people enjoy reading too. That's definitely what I'm getting from your writing. So um, I was also thinking about why I write ABO coming into this episode. I haven't written a ton of ABO, but I do have a lot of ABO outlines, which count, right? <laughs> they count. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. I sort of came to the conclusion that for me, the value in making ABO a part of this world or shaping a world according to whatever rules of ABO that I set out to include is that biology and the body are very central narratives to me or very central concerns. And I think they can be explored in ways in ABO that maybe having a non-ABO world, also called normal world, uh, wouldn't necessarily allow. So, you know, you have this biological drive here. And I think a lot of the critique, especially from trans people, that is directed towards ABO is that, you know, it is so focused on biology. Plus, of course, you know, it lets you write trans experiences without having to write trans characters. But I would sort of argue that it lets me write trans experiences without having to write trans characters. You know, it's the exact same thing, but I often consider that to be a plus because I don't necessarily want to write sort of especially the more negative experiences that I have in the real world. I want to write some specific parts of it without having to necessarily include the whole of that experience. And I think ABO is really a useful tool in that way. So I was especially thinking about, you know, the biology aspect. And I think in ABO, biology kind of works in itself. And it, there is a body horror element and a gender horror element, you could call that, I think. 
but it also acts as almost a code for desire and sexuality and the way that those play a role in our lives. So I think that what ABO does really, really well is it makes visible the role of desire and sexuality for our identity and for how we exist in power structures and for the ideas that we have about ourselves, about our gender, about our life in a society or, or in a kind of gendered field, a gendered environment. And while I think you can definitely critique that because it is biologizing, obviously, that's that's the whole concept behind it. I think it also uses biology as this kind of map, you know, this alternative map that you can use to explore how maybe difficult relations to your own body or contested relations to your own body would create a new experience And that's maybe harder to explore or to envision if you don't have that shorthand, that map that you can use. So, you know, if I want to write Sidney Crosby being like ashamed of his body, but also proud of his body because it lets him do the things he does, but it also leads to him being seen as maybe wrong in some way in the gendered environment that he moves in. I could write him as a trans character, but that would be a lot more work and a lot more background work, especially. Or I can just write him as an Omega. So for me, it is a way to include tidbits that I want to have or include emotional experiences of being one identity or the other without having to write the whole life or the whole background or the whole experience of having a certain identity, having a certain gender, having a certain sexuality. So it allows me basically to write short fix (laughs) without having to write a lot of words, but still packing that punch of this is the experience I want to convey. Okay, I love that too. Um, I think that's so interesting. And I feel like that hits on something that I think you and I have talked about a little bit before, where I feel like one of the things that ABO lets me do is that, you know, I'm, I am cis-ish, you know, like, I don't know that I have a clearer identity than that. But I think that I have a very complicated relationship to femininity and to what it means to inhabit like a gendered female body or a body that other people perceive as gendered in that way. And I think to write a trans character doesn't feel like my experience, but ABO lets me write about characters who have a really conflicted or complicated or fraught relationship to their bodies or to desire or to the way that they're perceived by others without having to label them in like language that our world would use. So I feel like it's almost like writing our world at a slant lets me, like you said, like explore certain emotional experiences that I'm really interested in, or I really want to see conveyed in fiction without having to figure out how it maps onto our world's identity categories. And I think the other thing I like about that, and I like about reading ABO, is that you can often read a character in many different ways, depending on what you need or want them to be. You can kind of perceive this as being a story that is is touching on trans or non-binary emotional experiences, or you can see it as this is about somebody wrestling with a gender that they do identify with, but that they have a lot of complicated feelings about the cultural package or the cultural scripts around it. Let's take a break and we'll be right back.
I have always been really fascinated by Sidney Crosby's gender as it is perceived in the hockey world, or at least I should say in hyper-masculine environments. And because like he hasn't always 100% completely mapped onto it. And I don't think that's his fault. I think it's where he's situated in hockey and how he entered hockey and who he was when he entered hockey. Like I always think back to like that Hall Gill quote, um, where he says the first thing he noticed about Sid was his size. Like his his words were, and I quote, "He was small. I wanted to dominate and overpower him." God, this quote is so unhinged. <laughs> it is so unhinged. Men just say things. <laughs> There's so much to be dug into there. And it's like with respect to hockey's sexual culture of dominance and violence, Sid has always kind of been hyper gendered. And part of it, I think, has to do with his age. When he rose to fame, he was a fresh faced 18 year old ingenue. And that meant he didn't really have as much masculine capital compared to the bigger, older, bearded men he was playing against. He was this like smooth cheeked, pink lipped, big eyed, bratty pretty boy teenager and that's a very specific gender dynamic within the gender of men and so combined with the insults that were gendered that got thrown at him you know cindy crosby stuff like that i think that lays a really good foundation upon which to talk about like gender discrimination even within all male environments and it others him in a way there and i have always been really interested in that but I was never really able to like, I don't know, I'm always a little more hesitant to write it because I don't experience that. I've never been in an all-male environment by virtue of like not being a man myself. And I don't have that much experience observing them either. My life doesn't include a lot of environments like that. But I'm so interested in that aspect of his character and I can get similar effects if I make him an Omega because then I can draw out those otherness characteristics about him and talk about how fascinated I am by like this weird dynamic that I don't fully understand. But by translating it into ABO, I can talk about it in terms that I understand a bit better and I feel more capable of writing. So it's that same thing where it's like, I could write about the real thing, like Sidney Crosby's gender in the hypermasculine world of the NHL. And I could, you could write trans Sidney Crosby, but changing it and making it so that I'm writing about the same issue through a different mechanism empowers me a bit more to write it in a way I more understand and maybe in a way that some more people relate to. And it's not that one's better than the other. It's just they're different venues with which to examine the same object, which I think is really interesting. I'm very interested in <laughs> talking about Sid and Gino um, and especially how the gendered nature of Sid's perception plays into the trope. How you as our Sid Gino Penguins historian would characterize that development seeing as it's been many, many years now. Since Historian is a very aggressive term. That is, <laughs> that's given me way more credit the than H, I deserve. Sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, mm, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far to say I'm a historian, just that I've been in this environment a little bit longer than you guys connoisseur. have. Connoisseur. Like, okay. Our Sigino connoisseur. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I would say that traditionally Sid, I think this plays into how we've seen the ship change. You know, traditionally Sid was the submissive character. He was the bottom. He was the person being pursued in fan fiction. And like Gino was the pursuer. 
he more often talked in fan fiction. And you saw those elements translate very directly to ABO at first. Like Sid was always the Omega and Gina was always the Alpha. And that underwent a pretty radical shift around eh, 2016, 2017, I would say, where you started to see more experimenting with who was who and who did what and start to see more variations on the theme which I don't know if that's inherently part of like just the fandom evolving and experimenting differently with the characters if that's an evolution in ABO in general you know as we've seen the trope change throughout the years but it's gotten a lot more experimental and now like we've been saying we see people writing ABO for all these different reasons sometimes it's erotic sometimes it's about gender sometimes it's about something else entirely but you just see way more experimentation with who is what and who plays what role and what those roles mean today it's like totally different can I just throw out there that I totally agree with everything you've said but might some part of that also just be that Sidney Crosby has grown into his jaw (laughs) or he's just more masculine in his presentation. (laughs) No absolutely I mean like the fact that he can grow a beard now like he didn't used to be able to do that and like now like I wouldn't say he has like a good beard but like he rocks the scruff a lot more often (laughs) and again he's not like this fresh-faced kid anymore. And he can grow a horrible little mustache. And he does that for Jess. And he does that for me. He does it for you. (laughs) And for you. He does it for all of us out there. Some (laughs) of us more, some of us are less likely to feel happy about that gift, but he does it for all of us. Well, and I also think too, like the fandom is also more interested in investigating Gino's vulnerabilities, which they weren't necessarily before because he was, you know, the stoic one or the pursuer or whoever you know he was coded that way and now people are more curious about like well what are his fears and anxieties and vulnerabilities in a potential text and so they're willing to take that along with making Sid the aggressor or making Sid the more masculine one or um, Sid is the captain he's the leader of the team so if they translate that very directly to his alphaness then they can experiment a bit more with how our characters fit into um, the ABO matrix and how they interpret that matrix in the first place. I think we've dug into why Sid was characterized as the Omega more often when he was younger because of these perceived feminized traits and because of the particular way that he was perceived by the larger fan base. But yeah, but like why, I mean, I think we also have some ideas on why Gino was cast in the role of Alpha and like what that said about, you know, our early understanding of his character. The first thing that jumped to my mind was, why is Gina the Alpha? If Sid is the Omega, it's because the Omega needs the Alpha. The the narrative needed an Alpha. And yes, Anne said, okay, I agree. it's going to be him. And I think that didn't necessarily take into account his personality traits, but I think that's also worth acknowledging that sometimes these fans did not have as much access to the personalities of these players as we anticipated. Like A big critique that gets leveled against hockey fans of this era by which i mean like the mid to early 2010s is that they were part of migratory slash fandom and they weren't necessarily deep diving into the characters and dynamics that existed canonically i say that with air quotes before they started writing and they were just kind of applying tropes that they wanted to apply to these characters right so 
when you take that into account, I think you can acknowledge that between that and the fact that over the last six years, we've gotten so much personality content from both Sid and Gino. Between Sid's like a thousandth point and thousandth game and with Gino like having his sit downs with Potash and stuff like that, we're seeing a lot more personality from these players that I don't think was as readily available in earlier times when you know, these earlier fans were writing. So I think the combination of that kind of meant that, you know, they wanted an alpha omega dynamic and they saw Sid because he's like literally physically smaller than Gino. I mean, at least by height, not by width, but you know, they saw the physical traits present. They saw Sid's feminization at the hands of rival fans who were using it to degrade him. And they're like, all right, we've got our, our Omega. Let's bring forth the Alpha. And then Gino kind of got pigeonholed into that role. I don't think he makes a bad Alpha, you know. But I think it wasn't very thoughtful, the way in which he was made into that. You know, I agree with Sid being more fixed, maybe, in his gender role in ABO. And I think you can also see that when you look at other pairings that include Sid or Gino. There isn't a ton of Gino plus someone else ABO out there. But just from the short glance that I had at it, it seemed to be, you know, sometimes he's an alpha, sometimes he's an omega. So it it just isn't as fixed. Whereas when you look at Sid and his most common non-Gino pairings, which I think are Sid and Claude Giroux and Sid and Nate McKinnon, he's very often still the Omega in that, which speaks to me towards that being kind of the more fixed aspect of his characterization. Do we want to talk a little bit about the limitations of ABO as a trope? Because I feel like we have some thoughts about both the ways that we choose not to write ABO and then also the things that ABO can kind of reinforce I think we can, but I feel a little ill-suited to it when it comes to limitations because I don't view it as a restrictive genre when I write it. And I think it's just because it brings a lot of elements that I'm really interested in, which is like gender discrimination and the feeling of being like the only the only one in the room. And I find that really fun and entertaining. And I also find the hyper-gendered erotica elements to be really fun. I really like including them and I really like writing them and I really like reading them. And, you know, I won't pretend that I feel like that is doing anything for any cause. (laughs) It's just something that I, you know, I find it fun. I find it entertaining. Writing erotica to show the man. Well, it's like I've, I've never been, I don't know. I don't know if I have like a responsibility to be like critically consuming the Omegaverse because like it is a niche fan fiction trope. I mean, it's a little less niche than maybe we'd want it to be these days. But um, <laughs> still, you know, it's it's not a large facet of our culture. And I think as someone who like I've never really written for heterosexual couples since I was like, you know, a really young teenager. You know, I've always been immersed in like slash fan fiction. And while that hasn't been true for like books, like I'll, I'll read a straight romance novel every once in a while. But um, when it comes to what I create, I've been creating for non-straight pairings for a really long time. And I still like consuming certain elements about the gendered world. And when I can write ABO, it's a way for me to bring those elements into slash or gay, bisexual, trans, whatever fiction that I'm writing. And to me, it's I find it to be a really fun way to mix things up. 
and I don't necessarily see it as a trap that I'm getting caught in. And I think it's because when I'm writing, I'm not writing with the forethought of what am I saying about gender in this piece. Now, is that short-sighted? Maybe. But um, it's not really my intention going into it. And so for sure, I'm I'm replicating complicated and real-world dynamics that are like concerning. The power imbalance between men and women, which is a huge part of what I think is ABO fan fiction, is something that I'm like writing with abundance and glee. So I think that I can blanket that with the wishy-washy statement of like, well, I'm just doing this for fun and it's erotica and it's not, I'm not trying to make a statement out of any of it. But I am replicating real world dynamics that impact me as a woman, even even though I don't have romantic entanglements with men, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not impacted by the real world dynamics of it all. So sometimes I feel like I'm doing it stupidly or incorrectly or dangerously because I'm not contending with actual problems that the genre is replicating. So I've got a lot of complicated feelings about it, basically. I don't think the onus has to be on you to necessarily subvert anything here. You know, just because you're... A woman and your writing doesn't mean that your writing has to actively advance the cause of women and the gendered other in our society. Um, and I think it's totally fine to, you know, just take a real world aspect that we're experiencing and trying to look for the fun parts, like trying to look for what you can use from that experience to create whatever you want to create. And that can be, you know, fun, entertainment erotica it it doesn't necessarily need to be you know some kind of statement i don't think and that's true I actually think that's a really interesting, I just feel like it gets at something really interesting, which is that fans have really different ideas. Like, And this is not just true of fans, but any writer, right? Like people just are using fiction in really different ways. And I think it can be really limiting to say that all fan fiction has to either be reinforcing or subverting something. You know what I mean? Like there is room for stuff to just be fun yeah. or for stuff to be like a playground for exploring ideas that don't necessarily have to coalesce into now this is how I feel about this, right? Or this is my message. And I think for me, that's one of the interesting things about this podcast is I think we all have slightly different ways of looking at that, right? And so to me, that sparks something really cool rather than being like, there is a right way to do this. There is a wrong way to do this. Because then it makes me interrogate. It's like, well, why do I feel like everything I have to write has to be like critically engaged? Like, I think for me, one of the things I wonder is, is that feeling my way of legitimizing fan fiction? You know, like acting on these unspoken ideas that what I'm doing is a waste of my time if I'm not critically interrogating stuff, you know, which is not how I feel about it. But is that a cultural prejudice around fan fiction that I've absorbed? And so I'm like, well, now if I can make it serious, then it feels like it matters. You know, like it feels like I'm doing something interesting legitimate right that's really interesting to me just because my primary motivator for like writing is because I'm writing like in community and like I definitely want to like I have like goals and aspirations of writing like original stuff one day but I divorce that really clearly from my fic writing life when I'm writing I'm writing in community ABO is such a good example of that because it is this shared trope that if you're in fandom for long enough, you know what it is. And like, you know, we expect certain variations within that, but we all still have this kind of shared cultural knowledge. So when I get to write it, it's like I'm writing this in-group language, this in-group microculture that I know people are going to know if they click on it. And 
you know, when they're coming into it with all their different expectations, like maybe one person is looking for the gender of it all. One person wants, you know, the sex scenes. Another person wants the feral elements of the romance. But it feels like such an in-group thing. And how cool that it's so pan-fandom. You know, it's like this little toolbox that we all get when we enter basically any fandom we get this little toolbox of you know here's your college au and here's your (laughs) abo and here's some of the other stuff i don't know coffee shop or whatever and you can use all of them but we know you know how they work they're tools that have certain jobs and we can use them in whatever way we want but we know their general purpose we know what they look like we know how they can function and we can all play with them i think that's really really fun and yeah i just enjoy that Which is not to take away, Jess, from what draws you to the genre, too. Yeah, I I like the way Kit put it. Like, It's a set of tools, and we all use the tools in different ways to build the kinds of things that we're interested in or we're looking for in fiction. And yeah, yeah. It's just that while I'm building a, you know, while I'm building a birdhouse, Jess is building the Taj Mahal, and that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jess is more like building, like, a saw horror house. <laughs> yes. It's like yeah. it's like the yes. the Chicago World Fair like murder house. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, like yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, but I think when I have to engage with ABO, I can't engage too critically because otherwise I'd get turned off from the genre and I'm like, "Ooh, can't get too close. Or I'm going to ruin it for myself." I mean, I do feel that. Like sometimes I think I ruin it for myself because I overthink it. And then I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, do I feel okay about this? You know, it goes back to my kind of original ambivalence of, you know, when I first encountered the genre, like what was it doing? And was that something I wanted to be doing or engaging with or taking in? But yeah, I feel like, yeah, the Saw Horror House is good. Like (laughs) that's the kind of fiction I like to read. You know what I mean? Not Saw, but like dark stuff or stuff that is really kind of grappling with that. And I have a lot of conflicted feelings about like, what does that mean about me? Right? Like, or what does that say about me as a writer and a reader and a person who's preoccupied with these horror or like extreme situations, right? And so then I feel like because that's the way that I approach it and that's my buried interest, then I have to do a lot more digging to like figure out how I'm going to explain my interest in the trope to myself or like how I'm going to say, okay, I am writing about these really horrific things that fascinate me in this dark way, but I'm doing them in a way that I can be like, okay, I feel like I didn't put something out into the world that just did harm, you know, (laughs) which I think is like different because of the intensity of the subject matter that interests me about that, whether it's like internalized shame and self-loathing or externalized violence in the world like sexual violence right because of the intensity of those things that I'm interested in or the darkness of those themes I feel like I have to do more work to make it okay for myself right whether that's a justification or like an actual like this is okay because I'm doing it in this way but you know that's really interesting to me just because it makes me think about the stuff I've read on like heterosexual romance like I think about like bodice rippers and how The reason they're called that is because they deal with, at some point, the heroine getting assaulted by the romantic interest. And there's been a lot of good talk lately, I think, about why those books exist in not in like a burn them way, but in a what does it say about women and how they're experiencing and socialized to experience desire that makes them want to read these. You see that dynamic crop up for a good reason. And I think along those lines, it's like when you get to read, uh, you know, that power imbalance that traditionally exists between men and women in those kind of romance novels, 
a lot of women have said that they like reading them because it's a way to like exert agency over the situation while also knowing there's a happy ending in place because that's like it's simply not a romance novel unless it has a happy ending and I kind of like that way of looking at it the same thing I think can be said for my interest in ABO where it's like I'm contending with like real world elements that are really scary and wrong and bad but in fictionalizing them and in being in control of the narrative and in knowing that this is a romance it's going to end a certain way you're able to play around with darker elements that you're supposed to be afraid of you're supposed to avoid you're you're supposed to be fearful of stuff like that and I think being able to recontextualize it and say this is a lived reality and these are real world dynamics and I'm taking them and I'm doing what I want with them is a lot of freedom and it's really understandable when people seek it out because they know that these things exist so why not have them exist with you know a happy ending are you talking about reading the romance Janice Radway also my girl yeah (laughs) oh I no I've not read that no, I've not. Oh, you should. She's saying exactly what you're saying there. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great work. Yeah. So, I mean, that tends to be my general approach with romance in general is I'm just interested in, you know, these crazy dynamics and these situations where like everything is heightened and intense because I think that's what drives like that romantic sexual interest. And, you know, it makes a, for a good story. And so, you know, when I can supercharge that in a slash environment by adding it, I find it really enjoyable and fun. Yeah. Whereas for me, I feel like I kind of, I do, I find it enjoyable and fun. And I should be totally clear, Beck, I am obsessed with your fic, you know, like I love like the stuff that you're doing. So it's not, it's not like, you know what I mean? Like, no, I don't think you're judging me. I think it's that I'm judging myself because I hear the salience in like what you're saying and like the gremlin in my brain is like you're enabling rape culture and I don't think you're implying it it's my own defensiveness so don't you're good don't worry yeah yeah one of the ways that I think about HBO is that I'm always just in it this is kind of like obsessive for me is like I have to find a way to like heal something in it you know what I mean like that's the other one of the strategies I use to make myself feel okay about it because it's like if I'm going to be exploring sexual violence or something like that, I also want to really be sure that I'm not just re-inflicting the thing in a way that is replaying it without giving myself or the reader like a way forward. Yeah. And I don't know why that it like, well, I, I have theories about why that. What is, I love know? about <laughs> it, Jess, is that you're doing that and I'm doing it too. But for me, the out I give them is the romance. Like I fix it through the romance. Yeah. Like I'm very much like I'm a... I'm a romanticist when it comes to books. Like, I just love the genre and I love the happy ever after, like making everything okay at the end. So I love that we kind of want the same emotional experience. But when we write it, we have two different thought processes where, mm-hmm. you know, you you very deeply need the characters to heal themselves or to find healing with other people. Whereas I go the very traditional romance route of you are healed through love. And I find that really fun that we're doing the same thing with, you know, two different pathways. I'm very much of the, oh, great two cakes persuasion. You know, if there's thick that uses um, ABO as an erotic construct or like a shortcut or whatever, or if there's thick that really dives into the societal context of a world where people are completely determined by their gender and sexual dynamics, I'm just like, oh, great, two cakes. And I get to eat them both? Amazing. So... I don't know. I just have a lot of enthusiasm for 
fanfiction and fanfic writers and ABO. And I'm so interested in seeing how it's going to develop in the future. I already feel like there are these um, changes that we've talked about in the episode. And there are a lot of blind spots still in ABO that I think could be talked about and, and could be considered. And, you know, in a way, those TikTok people are doing that by talking about, you know, is slick halal, you know, um, you are looking at things that have to be thought about in that world. And I think it's only getting richer, it's getting deeper, the things that we can do with it. So I, for example, am really interested in seeing, you know, how could this potentially work for Femslash in the future? Because we don't see a ton of ABO Femslash. Okay, can I play a guessing game with you? Okay, can you give me the exact number of fix on AO3 tagged Alpha, Beta, Omega Dynamics and the pairing Sid and Gino? Oh, Jesus. And whoever's closest is going to win. I'm going to say 300. And I'm going to say 290 of them are back. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like a thing. Give me a break. No, I love it. Yeah, um, yeah. Kit, my answer is going to be 700. Okay, that one's going to Jess. The exact number of figs tagged for ABO and Sigino is 197. Less than 6% of Sigino fanfictions are ABO. And yet, I feel like, I don't, maybe it's just because I'm interested in it. Seeing how small this is, it really puts it into perspective that, you know, this genre is so small and so exploratory, and yet it consumes so much of our thoughts because it's kind of a locus of all these topics the three of us are really interested in. And a lot of readers are interested in them too. So I find that to be really fun and curious. And it's one of those quirks about fandom that I get a total kick out of. But it is small. Any parting words for our listeners, Kit? Oh my god, now I'm nervous. This is my Roman's countryman speech, but for Sigino ABO, I can do this. There are only 197 Sigino fics tagged for ABO on AO3, and you, listener, can support this mission by writing more ABO fic. You can help to expand <laughs> that number. <laughs> If you'd like to react to the episode or write in with questions or topics for us to discuss, you can reach us at goodwoodpod on Tumblr or goodwoodpod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Please, my son, he's very sick. The only cure is wolf erotica. Please help me. Nailed it.